We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Welcome, everyone. Uh, looking to see, hello, St. Louis, hello, Baltimore. Let us know where you're from, what you do. And uh, we're excited to know what you're thinking about, uh, what you're hoping to get out of this session. And it is 2.01, so we'll go ahead and start off. My name is Kevin Baird. I chair the Global Center for College and Career Readiness. I am joined by my colleagues, Ruth Bruss, who's our executive director and also works at one of our partners, Meteor Education, looking at pro-social environments. John O, John Oberly, who is also at Meteor, and he's going to be in the chat today. And a special guest today, uh, Levi Belknap, and he'll be talking a little bit about Merlin. And today, I don't know if you all uh, uh, watched the blacklist, but I said this is kind of the skills list, case 74, a little bit of inside humor there. As we think about distraction as a workplace hazard and as a critical skill in college and career readiness. And I want to note, I'm very aware that we, um, we don't have uh, distraction on our scope and sequence, but I want us to really think about how distraction plays into what happens in the classroom and what we're teaching our kids to do. So there's us, you'll get the slides. And by the way, everything I speak to today is referenced in the slides, so you can link out if you want to um, look at the research. So we wanna think about two things, distraction management as a critical career skill, and how we are helping our students to think about distraction management, because they are distracted and have becoming self-aware and how they use tools for that. And then two emerging best practices in distraction management. First, um, artificial intelligence is what I see as the distractor of the future and how we manage that and make sure that it actually becomes helpful. And Levi is going to help us through that. And then secondly, thinking about mobile phones because mobile phones are today the lead distractor in our schools. So those are our two areas and two sub-areas. So number one question for you, please chat it up. What are the primary distractions in your classroom? What are the primary distractions in your classroom? Just get out those fingers. What are the primary distractions in your classroom? Wait to see what everyone says. What do you think of the distractions for our students? Hello, God. Hello, Ghana. I see that there. I have a sense of what are what are some of so I see cell phones, cell phones, cell phones, <clears throat> the internet, smart watches. There we go. Teaching online is interesting as a distractor. Like yeah, we were just we were just talking about that. We're gonna talk about actually working from home. <clears throat> Do you teach distraction management? Have you thought about that? What's the importance of that as a part of whatever kind of, of work you're doing in a classroom? I want you to think about workplace skills. So we're in the business of college and career readiness. And today, if you look at the percentage of our students who are going into college, we are increasingly in the business of career readiness, right? Kids that are moving into the workforce um, uh, after high school. So what I have here are, uh, some of you hopefully have seen these. These are um, ways that um, in industry and business, people tend to think about 
prioritization. Priority setting is a number one workplace skill. And in most businesses today, they're always balancing, you know, whether or not I have enough resources in that business, the investment in that business. How do I get all the things done that I need to get done? So you have, for instance, the idea of urgent and important. That is the quadrant of necessity, not urgent, not important. The quadrant of waste. Quadrant of waste, I need to eliminate. The quadrant of necessity, I need to manage. One of the challenges is that in schools, we tend to tell our kids when things need to be done. We give them the priority, right? Um, we uh, give them the tools. We're not asking them necessarily to prioritize. So I would suggest to you, as you're considering how we actually integrate priority setting and distraction management, inquiry-based curriculum and learning lab approaches, where students actually have to put together part of the lesson themselves, figure out what to do first, second, and third, and work through that, is important. Autonomous scope and sequence, setting some of their own due dates and deadlines, can really help for the prioritization to manage that. And then establish learning plans and due dates for those plans. Because at the end of the day, in, in the career world, uh, I, I, I don't get an F, right? Or I don't get points off for turning something in late. And it's not about late or early. It's really about managing the priorities and thinking through them instead of having someone else tell me, have it done by Friday. I want us to understand that the things we're talking about are really very, very important conversations in career readiness with employers. 53% um, uh, of employees spend, uh, only 53% of employees actually spend more than a fully focused hour on a task. Uh, we know that in a typical workday, 28% of work time is lost to distractions annually. And I'm going to talk about the classroom for that a little bit later. Um, and we have implications for a distracted workforce. If you think about all of the errors that can happen, the safety pieces that can happen. Um, focus, actually focusing, getting rid of distractions is the single most critical skill for productivity. So if you think about how we prepare our students for jobs to go into the workforce, this becomes one of those critical social emotional skills, no matter what you're studying, the ability to actually focus on the task at hand. And I think all of us would say in the classroom, that's also really critical for maximizing classroom time, maximizing learning time. As we've all agreed here in our chat, cell phones are one of the top distractions in classrooms. And indeed, they're a top 10 workplace distraction. So either removing them or helping students understand how to manage them, dealing with cell phones is a critical element. It's a critical element for reducing distraction in the classroom, also for helping our students understand how to manage distraction in the workplace. Interestingly enough, it isn't just the cell phone. This is actually a piece of research that Microsoft did where they were looking at barriers to productivity in their own organization. And ironically, if you know Microsoft Teams, it was Microsoft Teams. Ruth, you work out in kind of the real world, if you will. How much of your day is spent on a Zoom call or a Teams call? I would say probably typically on average six hours a day I'm on a Zoom. So Microsoft Five to six found, hours. Yep. found the same thing. Uh, some, of their, some of their employees were really eight hours a day on a Zoom call or on a, on a Teams call. So wow. we think about what... What we're teaching our kids to do is thinking about 
who are you collaborating with? It isn't just collaborating. Who do you need on your team and why? And how are you managing your time? So if you think about, particularly as our kids get into middle grades and um, high school, how you manage your time doing teamwork after school. I'm a real advocate for that, by the way, if you're going to give homework, give teamwork and let students um, actually get involved in working together collaboratively outside of the classroom. Because it's a whole different ball game, right? Thinking about how I use that time productively. By the way, they're, again, thinking about some crucial statistics. Um, we only spend an average of 12 minutes on a task before we're interrupted. That's from a University of California study. And it takes us more than 25 minutes to return to our task. And I want you to think about the classroom in that way as well, because that same dynamic happens in the classroom. And how do those distractions affect productivity? These are critical career skills. 79% of our workforce, the workforce that we are responsible for developing, feel distracted during a workday. Two-thirds don't believe they have enough uninterrupted focus time. Think about that also in terms of the classroom. What's my time to focus to get the work done with my collaborative teams? And by the way, a recent study on the influence of distractions when working from home, and this is true for kids as well as for parents, showed that when I work in spaces full of distraction, I can be much less productive. So teaching my student why actual order and, and organization in their room, at their desk, matters. I think that's really fascinating. Um, Ruth, you know, when you think about kids, you, you worked at Orange County Public Schools for a long time. How might you engage a student in a conversation about being organized in their physical space? Well, I think that that is really important for a teacher to have a space for students to feel like they can put their things. Um, I've walked in a lot of classrooms and it feels like it's the teacher space. So you have to um, open up the classroom that there is space for students to feel organized, whether it's the desk or cubbies or, or places like that, that they can feel like they can at least have their items, but at the same time, not be a distraction sitting right on top of their desk. And interesting enough, I've been in a lot of classrooms they, that teachers have not given that space to students. So it is distracting. They have their backpacks right next to them and they're pulling things out during, you know, during class time and while teachers talking and they're pull, putting things on their desk and such. So I think I think the biggest thing is ensuring that there is space for students um, for their things because they all come to school with things that they want, you know, special things and sometimes things you don't want them to have, but they do come to school with things. It's student-owned student space, right? Yes. Um, I also want to note, as we are preparing our students for the workplace, and if you are teaching in a CTE uh, program, this becomes really incredibly important, that um, losing focus and being distracted can be exceptionally dangerous. And we don't often think about this, so that could be everything from driving to operating a forklift to just being around heavy um, uh, equipment. Uh, Ruth, I know we're gonna, we're gonna talk about cell phones and distraction in a little bit. You were recently in a CTE classroom where they were actually putting their, uh, putting their phones in a, in a yonder pouch to protect them. Tell us a little bit about that. What did you see and why was it important in that CTE classroom? So the students, as soon as they walked into the classroom, had to put their um, cell phone in a yonder pouch, which Kevin's going to share in just a little while. It's a great tool to allow students to have their phone on them, but they can't use it. It also takes away the, um, 
the sound that you get for everybody, every social media, every notification, all those things that just constantly pop up. This was in a CTE um, classroom mechanics class. The equipment is very, very heavy. They had life-size cars they were working on and everything. And the, the, when I talked to the teacher, they said, we absolutely, I cannot have students in here where they're focusing on their phones. Um, one misstep in that garage can cause a major accident. So it was really important for them. And I talked to the kids and they didn't seem to mind it either. They said, actually, it was a nice kind of break for like an hour, hour and a half that they didn't have to worry about looking at their cell phones and they could really be in the moment. All right. So the gateway to distraction, I think we're all agreed, the phone, the watch, these are the critical pieces. And we want to think about managing those elements. And this is all really around new technology. Now, I'd like to, and by the way, here are some of the references from all of those pieces, distraction in the workplace. I want to speak first, before we get into phones, though, about something that you all might not have thought about. And that is, as artificial intelligence emerges into our schools, how does artificial intelligence impact the element of distraction? So first question is, how is your school or classroom or district using AI? Let's go ahead and chat that up. Your classroom or school or your district, are you using AI in any way? We'll just be quiet here for a minute and see, are you using AI, artificial intelligence? Paula says, no, not yet. Other folks want to just weigh in. Are we using artificial intelligence yet? And if you are, how are you? <laughs> no, but our students are trying it to uh, cheat. <laughs> so what we found is that for most schools and classrooms, uh, it's not integrated into part of the curriculum yet. So I'm really pleased that we can get ahead of this part of the conversation. I want you to know that there are a lot of different kinds of applications when they talk about artificial intelligence. Most of you have probably heard about chat GPT. On my uh, diagram here, that comes from OpenAI, and it's just to generate text. And that's why some of our, our students are using it to try to get ahead in their work. The most important thing I want you to understand today about these artificial intelligence tools like ChatGPT is that for the vast majority of them, if you look at the, the, the little fine print right at the bottom of the slide, it says you may produce inaccurate information. These are not, for the most part, intelligent tools. They can have hallucinations. And what that means is that if they can have even one hallucination, I end up spending more time trying to figure out if what it said was right or wrong. Was it true or not? Or I have to go back and edit, was it true or not? One of the reasons why we have vetted materials inside of classrooms, or even why if you have students looking at Wikipedia where you have community moderating, right? The community can weigh in, is that you have some sense of editorial. But when ChatGPT says it's true, it doesn't say, by the way, it might not be true. It just says, this is a fact. And that can be a problem. As a matter of fact, this uh, graph uh, shows you how well the models at currently in these broad models like ChatGPT are doing. If they can pass a test, for instance, the law school test or the GRE test. And what I've done by marking the red is simply, this is the amount of distraction 
across all of those domains. So as AI comes into your classrooms, as you're thinking about how you use these tools, I want you to consider that if it has even one hallucination, you're really in for a problem. And so we've been tracking this closely, and we've been fascinated by the folks over at Merlin Mine. So uh, one of the reasons is because a long time ago, in a land far, far away, um, I actually consulted with IBM on something called Watson for Education. And part of that team came together. So I'm going to turn it over for a minute. And Levi, tell us a little bit about your team, about uh, uh, Merlin Mine, and then we're going to have just a little video that gives you a sense of what they're trying to do to make sure that we're not distracted with all the hallucinations, but we're actually reducing the distractions. Levi, it's all yours. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. So the Merlin Mine team started from the former IBM Watson for Education research team. There was a handful of PhDs in computer science and AI that came together and said, we believe there's real opportunity for AI to have positive impact in education. They spent about a decade working on that at IBM and then realized that to truly fulfill that mission, they needed to leave and have a purpose-built company building AI to apply to EDU. That's Merlin Mind. So we started about seven years ago with this team from IBM Watson, and uh, we're now 125 people, lots of really uh, smart folks at the kind of cutting edge of AI, but have chosen a mission-driven path to use AI for good and try to bring it to education in a way that's impactful. I think it's really interesting is that then intersects with some of the challenges of ChatGPT and large language models and hallucinations, because the team at IBM Watson that left saw you got to do things differently to make it work in education. It first of all needs to be private, safe, and secure, but then it really needs to be built to understand the workflows of teachers. What are they actually trying to accomplish in classrooms and the needs of students? What are they trying to do in classrooms and how can you bring AI in to help? And part of the mission and vision was, we believe AI is going to powerfully impact what humans can achieve as it starts to speak our language and work with us more naturally. If you just kind of rewind past the last few decades, computers came into our lives and started to help us achieve more, but it usually meant a human had to learn to speak the language of a computer. First, you had to learn to write DOS and code and type to a computer. Then you had to learn to click menus and ch choose functions. Then eventually there was graphical user interfaces and you could push on buttons much simpler. But then we got to touch screens and you could just start touching. Well, the next advancement in AI was really computers understanding our spoken human language. And that's why I think the advancements with ChatGPT are so exciting is because it represents that we really are on the precipice of being able to expect computers to understand our language so that we can talk to them the way we want to and have them do things that can help us. But to your point, Kevin, if those responses come back as false or hallucinations or incorrect information, it becomes pretty difficult to believe that that's going to be helpful in an educational setting. So what the Merlin Mind team has done and what we can look at here is we've built a foundation that allows a education institution like a school district to bring a AI solution into the classroom that does not hallucinate because it's built on educational information and it's bringing back responses that are academically vetted and aligned. But then it also takes one more step to kind of get to the whole distraction piece, which is it's built for the reality of what a teacher is trying to do, which is access content, control digital tools, use devices like a display and videos and presentations, but to do that with their voice from anywhere in the room so that they're freed from the technology distractions 
so they can spend more time interacting with their students and guiding students to interact with students. So this is a quick two minute video of this application, Merlin, the AI assistant built for education that does that in a private, safe, secure way and avoids hallucinations. All right, let's take a look at the video, Jono, before we go We're on. Merlin Minds, we've released the first large language model for education to bring safe, secure private AI to education to assist teachers, to help them save time and control what's happening at the front of the room while they're walking around with their students. What wavelengths of light can the human eye see? The human eye can see wavelengths of light between 390 nanometers and 700 nanometers. So this is a generative AI response in the middle of class that I can bring visually exciting, engaging images to respond to student questions. We can now talk about wavelengths of light. But I also can recommend next questions. I can have activities to break into a class activity. And this seems similar to maybe some of the things you may have seen on the internet, like, oh, that looks like ChatGPT, or maybe some of the other integrations people have done. This is built on Merlin's own large language model. So we have built a foundational large language model just for education because it needs to be private, safe, and secure. But more than that, it needs to bring in more than just an answer, right? So what you see here also is educational resources that help a teacher visually explain to students, well, what is light? But I can then jump across all the stuff I already use. Open my presentation on space and Mars so I can jump into my presentation in Google Drive without me having to go there. It knows that I use Google Drive to store my lessons. Or I could say, open my bookmark on the Challenger Deep. I wanna talk about the depth of the ocean. So I could jump to a different asset that I use. I wanna control this without touching a screen from anywhere in the room. I could send this to my LMS, or I could ask another question. From anywhere in the room now, I as a teacher have control over any tool I wanna to use with my voice and the power of generative AI, privately, safely, and securely. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I just want to note, as this fits in here, you know, we might have been a little bit behind the curve when we think about uh, uh, cell phones, or certainly when we think about watches and all of those things. And now our policies are trying to catch up. I really want us to think about how we get ahead of the curve with AI tools, because they're coming, and they're coming in a very big way, and they're coming into business. So if we think about career readiness, and they're coming into schools, and we could do a very significant disservice to our kids. And by the way, just as an aside, um, I, I was just in a meeting uh, with some folks who work with YouTube. Uh, you guys probably know that um, for our younger generation, they go to YouTube first. And YouTube is really being challenged with all of the, literally the fake news, if you will, all of the, all of the things that are just simply erroneous. Uh, and the example that it gave me was uh, a, a YouTube, because they can do all this deep fake stuff, right? Where it had a pyramid and the video was saying, well, the pyramids were created to generate electricity. And Again, I mean, you would have students believing that. So, uh, Levi, thank you so much. If folks want to kind of figure out more or learn more, because I know that all of this is new, um, uh, how do they get in touch with you? I think we put your name somewhere, right? Yeah, I think it's at the end. I'll also put it in the chat there here so go. people can contact me. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Um, so, uh, uh, happy to kind of let you learn there. And one of the things that actually the headline here is from today from today that the administration plans to kind of step up government oversight of AI with, by pressure testing, by asking is the AI appropriate for the audience. So these conversations are really moving very quickly. And here's a framework from the US Department of Education, which says you need to be very careful about how you're employing this kind of content. Thank you, Levi, really appreciate it. Here are references and 
let's get into mobile devices. So I know that everyone in the chat said cell phones, or most everyone said cell phones are the single biggest distractor. My question for you next is, how are you managing the use of cell phones? Can you tell that? How are you managing the use of cell phones so you're managing that distraction in your classroom? Let's chat that up for a minute, please. How are you using, how are you managing cell phones? Again, really critical, even in the workplace, how we're managing cell phones. How are you managing cell phones for kids? How are we talking to kids about cell phones and their devices? Are, they, are you using cell phones in the curriculum? Interesting, Kevin. I'm seeing that some people are saying that they have to keep them in their lockers. Some have to keep them at home. And then some don't even have a cell phone policy. Just, I guess, they can just have them on their personal being. Mm -hmm. Away, away for, for the day. The day. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. And say, I, I'll, I'll remember that. Away for the day. We've get, Junior college teacher, we've given up. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, obviously we have policy trying to catch up. We have a number of states where we have new cell phone restrictions, like for instance, in Florida. Um, we know quite a lot about mobile device use. And I want to dig into that for a minute. I think we all agree that, or the chat seems to indicate that we agree that cell phones are significant distractions. I want us to think a little bit about what cell phones actually, the risks that they present. Um, uh, the slide here is from uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital, looking at the mental health risks uh, of cell phones. But first of all, we know that teachers, this is a study of more than a thousand teachers, uh, teachers believe that cell phones are either somewhat or incredibly distracting. Uh, we know that it tends to be really difficult to use cell phones as a content delivery device because of issues of equity. Different kids, different phones, not everyone can work together, very different experience. Uh, we also know that there are a variety of challenges with start phones, uh, you know, maybe texting during the lesson, again, being distracted, distracted by social media. But I want to note that bringing the cell phone into the classroom actually is a very significant risk for some things like human trafficking, like bullying. Not only damaging others, but really damaging yourself. And actually we're involved in a project looking at human trafficking. And I would tell you the number one way the children are preyed upon is through the devices, through their mobile devices, not through the computer, through the mobile device. The National Institutes of Health looked at high cell phone users and low cell phone users. And they found that high cell phone users ended to have more neck pain, ended to have weight gain, had a variety of physical ailments, and also had significantly greater incidence of depression, loneliness, and mood disorders. Mobile phones are so significantly concerning 
The content on them is so significantly concerning. The Surgeon General has warned that social media could actually harm kids. We should think about it as something addictive. Now, when we think about career readiness, we've already noted some statistics around cell phones. I just want to add to that argument. I want to add to the argument that the appropriate use of phones in the workplace is a critical career skill. Two-thirds of employees admit to using their cell phones at work during the day. More than half of them say personal messaging is the top reason they're using it. So same as what's going on in, with our kids, right? On average, it's about an hour a day that our folks moving into careers are performing non-work-related activities on their cell phones. About one-third say that they're checking personal email. And just a little bit less than a third say they're using social media. So you think about all of those things we just talked about with social media being not great. Interestingly enough, if the, the, the person is on their phone a lot, they're actually more likely to post negative things about employees or coworkers. That goes back to bullying. They uh, do naughty things like keeping confidential information. Or other words, uh, uh, essentially breaking the rules at work. Nearly 40% of organizations said they had a data breach, security breach, because of cell phones. And more than one half of all employers consider cell phone use to be the biggest adversary of workplace productivity. Now, our job as educators is to help our students be prepared for the workplace. And this is not something we're putting on our scope and sequence but it is a critical skill to understand or to help students be reflective about. So today, we have a number of different kinds of ways that folks are dealing with cell phones in the classroom. And we've identified a very significant concern here. Right now today, as much as 8% of class time is being consumed by device management. Ruth, what does that mean? What are some of the ways that folks are, are managing devices in the classroom? And how is that taking up classroom time? Well, it, it's, a, it's a distraction. So obviously, if a teacher is teaching and a student has a cell phone out, um, every time a not notification comes on, there's a, there's a sound. They, now, that can be muted. Um, oftentimes, I talk to teachers and they say they, they can tell that their students are um, on their phone in the middle of a lesson. I don't know if you've ever stood up in front of and, and, and tried to give a presentation and everyone's heads are down. They're not, you know, focused. They're not in the moment. They're not um, paying attention to the lesson at hand. And quite honestly, you can call on a student immediately and tell it right from that moment that they're not paying attention. And they, most of them are pretty um, honest and say, I've been, I had focus on something that was on my phone or not. Um, so it is a huge distraction inside the classroom. But on the flip side, I do see some teachers trying to use the cell phone, but it's very minimal. I think the thing that I see most is the QR code because you have to have a QR code reader and obviously a cell phone is the easiest to have that. So a lot of um, teachers, um, especially social studies teachers, are using a lot of WebQuest and WebQuest used to be solely on, on the um, internet and going, you know, you had to have access to a computer. Now you can actually use your cell phone for that. So there, there, there is a plus and a minus to it, but for the most part, it's it's more of a distraction than um, being used by teachers. Well, we've been following an approach uh, called Yonder, 
And uh, you can see here, Yonder's been getting a lot of press and trying to digging into why Yonder, what is it about Yonder that really makes the school a different environment? You know, school feels different uh, when they're using Yonder. And I want to explain what's happening and some of the things that we found as we've dug into this. So the idea of Yonder, uh, the preferred implementation method is kids come to school and they put their phone in the Yonder pouch. And it has a magnetic uh, a clasp. And by the way, this is used actually in a lot of concerts now, or if you're going to a comedy show or whatnot, so that during the show you, uh, you, know, you can't take video, um, but also so that you're not distracted, so you're really in, in the moment. And then there are uh, magnetic devices which help you unlock the Yonder pouch. But the preferred method here is that you come to school away for a day, away for the day, as the chat said, I come to school, I put in the yonder pouch. Now I'm not distracted. I'm not thinking about it, right? I'm not even, I'm not even wondering, you know, who texted me? Did my, you know, the, the person I have a crush on, am I going to go find that they texted me in my locker? It's just put away for the day and then I'm going to come back to it. And this again is training students for the kinds of, of ways to manage themselves in the career environment. And they found some fascinating things. Actually, large-scale systemic outcomes quickly. Uh, so if you know Philadelphia, Philadelphia is a pretty large district. They found almost immediately increase in positive social interaction. And you think about the statistics we've just seen from the workplace. Well, of course, the phone gets in the way of positive social interaction. And not just by distracting a student, but all of the negative things that happen when I'm out there in that other environment, that environment that I'm probably already spending too much time at home with. Uh, minimize disruption in schools. They've actually seen positive uh, performance with um, uh, discipline. And then learning and engagement. The implementation of just, just having the phones away for the day has reduced distractions to student learning and engagement. This is another case study where they actually looked at behavioral elements and they looked at them uh, the previous uh, uh, quarter and then after the yonder deployment where the phones are just, you know, they're sequestered. They're in that pouch. Disruptive behaviors radically down, fighting radically down. Um, uh, inappropriate technology used way down, right? Skipping class, which I think is interesting, is way down. And, and by the way, I, I'm very aware that um, in some districts, you know, kids do things like, um, you know, they're figuring out how to buy illicit substances or using the phones for other kinds of, you know, just not positive behaviors. And those are risks, by the way, at school as well, right? Like we, we have a, a, a fundamental uh, mission to do no harm. Remember that losing focus and being distracted can be dangerous at work. But losing focus and being distracted on your phone can also really be dangerous at school and not just in the classroom, right? We all know that bad things can happen in the bathroom um, uh, between classes. We all know that bad things can happen out on the, uh, uh, the playground, right? when class isn't in session. The idea of sequestering the phone and managing it from a district perspective has seen really interesting results. So again, the kids kind of do that at the beginning of the class, or excuse me, beginning of the school day and sequester it. Now you don't have to do it that way, all right? Um, uh, you can actually manage it in the classroom where I sequester it, I, I put it in the pouch, and then I come in the classroom 
And if I'm going to have like a web quest or something, I can unlock it and use it as part of the classroom. But I'm interested in this group's vote. Okay, again, this is a part of a research study. If you are voting on school-wide management of cell phones, put it away for the day, or you are voting for classroom management, classroom by classroom management of cell phones, you can have your own policy as a teacher. What would you vote? I'm just going to let your votes come in here. Adam says school-wide, just sequester them. school-wide for consistency. I'm not going to be a, uh, the police. But I'm interested, uh, in the chat, uh, we had a few people. Tanya says classroom management. And we also had a couple of people who are using phones in the classroom. I want to make sure that we hear your voice as well. Um, what's your thought about classroom specific and why? It's interesting. So Becky notes that she did kind of contracts in the school. Um, uh, uh, someone else has, a, a students, they have pouches. It's not a yonder. Um, and, uh, oh, that's interesting. It's another way they keep track of school attendance. Interesting. School management includes adults. How are we being good, uh, um, you know, good, uh, role models, right? I saw uh, that so and I was thinking the same thing, you know, if a teacher's on the phone, and I have walked in classrooms when the teacher's on the phone um, and the kids are just kind of sitting there not really doing anything. I'm not saying you know, they weren't appropriately on the phone, but kind of takes away mm -hmm. from that instructional time. Yeah. So one of the things that we found when I give that 8% statistic is that um, for uh, classrooms where they're managing these pieces on a classroom basis, that you're losing um, uh, upwards of a couple of minutes. As kids come in, they're putting their phone away. So, you, oftentimes there's a special place to put the phone. It might be in a, uh, uh, in a special box or, or whatnot. I'm putting it in the, uh, in the little shoe holders, which by the way, right now I, I would note, I was just talking with a public health nurse and there was concern around that because we're coming into flu season and cold season. And all you, you might know that it's actually bacterial contamination. I didn't know this is immediate. So you're kind of you're kind of sticking your phones into a bacteria pit, which I think I, I hadn't thought about that. That's a little bit uh, not great. But actually, what we were looking at was just the amount of time for managing the device in the classroom or the interruption in the classroom. Remember, when the classroom is interrupted, it takes time to get back to that focus area. So we've really been voting for kind of a policy where the policy is. I, I'm going to use your guys' phrase, away for a day. But if I'm using it in a classroom and I want to honor, I see one where it was a, really important for ADHD, et cetera, I can have um, uh, uh, it being used in the classroom, right? I can have, I have a picture of that somewhere where I can use it in the class. I just unlock it, right? I just unlock it. Oh, here, here, right here, this little picture in the corner. You see the yonder pouches on the side of the class. Then if I was going to use it, I could unlock it and it's fine. But I don't turn every classroom into a fight for the phone. I don't create every teacher as a, a device manager. I want to note that in many instances, the mobile device lacks equity. 
and it lasts impact as a content delivery or content interaction experience. So as we think about what that looks like, as we think about how we might approach the management of, of mobile devices, I want to just take us back to the idea that a career readiness skill is understanding distraction. Like I was saying at the beginning, I have this Apple Watch and I had to turn it off because it was just constant alerts. But if I have the phone, even at lunch, even in the hallway, I'm exposing my students to increased opportunities for depression, for loneliness, for other mood disorders. If you are using the, the phone, if the phones are available in the classroom, I hope you are proactively using it so students are thinking about the skills to manage it. Put it away. You don't have to use it now. You're going to get distracted. And how they develop skills and, tr and trust with their own colleagues, not there. And here's a variety of references around cell phone management as you're thinking through how we manage distraction. Now, the last piece, all of the elements we're talking about, how we make sure that students are engaged, engaged in learning, engaged with each other, it's the same way as the workplace. And that is that I tend to be working in teams. I'm collaborating. You can see a picture of Ruth right there. Ruth, talk to us about what do we know about classroom design to minimize distraction and accelerate engagement? So what we know is that um, we are social human beings and we have the social brain. And what, are, what we know, the best way to keep students engaged is for them to be um, facing each other, eye to eye, knee to knee, as we say, um, where students can learn from each other, mimic um, what other people are thinking, be able to kind of use the nonverbal and verbal representation to understand um, what other people are thinking. So we set up classrooms that where the desks are not in rows like you see here typically, but in groups of, of um, well, research says you shouldn't have more than four in a group, so twos, threes, and fours, where students are able to be face-to-face -face and be able to have those conversations um, and really minimize those distractions because they are focused on each other rather than on the devices. And in some cases, you know, even the the um, computer can be, or the laptops that a lot of our students have can be distractors as well. So we work on creating spaces like that um, that allow students to really work together. So I want you to consider um, what it means if you have a classroom and it's just in rows right over here on the left. Um, uh, what that means for having a distracted classroom it is much easier. And if you look actually at some of the research, I, I didn't note this. It was on one of the slides earlier. One of the critical distractions is actually what's happening in my head. And it's much more difficult to be in my head, to be distracted when I am with my colleagues and peers operating collaboratively. Um, in the same way, it's a lot less, uh, 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 it's a lot more difficult to be distracted in that way if I know that my phone is in the yonder pouch and I'm not looking forward to, you know, talking with my crush when I go back to my, uh, when I go back to my locker. These are all elements that are part of something called the pro-social paradigm. And I would actually really suggest, if you're looking for a really good book, our colleague Linda Gale Walker has a book, Surviving the Storm. And she brings all of these pieces together, the mental health part, um, uh, uh, the elements of being distracted, uh, the feeling of being disengaged, and how I survive that and how school is a way where I bring students together in a halo of trust in those collaborative groups, and I set them up to focus. I set them up for that shared experience so that they're really in that moment.
we'd like to hear from you. This is a part of emerging science. So a lot of us have been talking about the science of reading. This is a science of managing distraction, the science of managing new technologies in the classroom. So I'm actually, you see, I'm a principal research on this idea of distracted learning. Ruth is helping us out. Jono is actually a researcher and thinking about how we're managing that. You're going to receive a link to a survey. And we're going to ask you if you would please consider just five minutes. Let us know your belief, your work in that survey, and we'll actually give you the white paper that comes out. I was about how we manage these elements and why. Because we know that a critical career skill is managing distraction in the classroom. And we know that there are new technologies that are coming like AI where, listen, it could be wrong. It could be wrong. And now I'm spending a lot of time just trying to figure out what was true. And then I have mobile devices. And mobile devices can take up as much as 8% of my classroom time. We want to get ahead of the policies so that we're managing them ourselves before we have someone come in and just tell us what to do and how to do it. So you're going to get the survey. If you're interested in a consult in how to use artificial intelligence, we gave you Levi's um, uh, email. Uh, John Oberly is also a great resource here. And then a device management consult if you're really struggling for some of these things. And we'll be asked in the survey as well, would you like to talk with someone? And then requesting the existing research. And all that research is right here inside of the deck. So we have a few minutes. Are there questions that you all might have as we think about how do we go about managing our devices? Why it's important to make sure that we have a school-wide policy away for a day, giving students the opportunity to create their own scope and sequence or be more in charge of, um, uh, uh, to be more in charge of uh, their own learning, their own plan. And I see a question come up. I got to go up here on mine. I think there was a question. Here we go. Um, how does Merlin uh, moderate the content that it demonstrates for students? So one of the things to note is that with artificial intelligence, for instance, with the uh, chat GPT, chat GPT was trained on all of this content, all tons and tons of different kinds of content. And then they put in kind of uh, guardrails so you can't ask it questions which might be, you know, a bad question. Like, you know, how do I make a bomb, right? You can't ask it that. It's not going to tell you that. Um, however, uh, it still has all of that information in the background. Now, in uh, Merlin, it doesn't have that information. It never touched that information. Merlin began with school safety information. Um, I'm looking here. Uh, so, so if you think about the curation, it actually it, it started off with school information. It's kind of like the way I was describing it is, if you start off with Encyclopedia Britannica, you know you're pretty safe right? Um, uh, or if you start off with curriculum or school materials. And by the way, they can help you do that. They can help you build your own approach to that content. Um, so yeah, so if you think about the youngest age group uh, where you think about the distraction, I want you to consider how young today are native um, uh, students, students who are native inside of uh, technology are going out and using YouTube. Ruth, what's your sense of that? What have you seen? I, I, I have a YouTube statistic, but um, uh, demographics, 
using YouTube or going out to find um, uh, their answers on the web? Because if they're doing that, they're going to use AI as well. Okay, I'm just going to tell you randomly because if you've got a statistic, it's, that's going to be it. But I typically don't see students below fourth grade going into YouTube. I am fourth grade and above. I can see them, I, you know, very rarely fourth and fifth, definitely middle and high school students for the most part. Um, a lot of the students are still learning to read in K one, two, three, so not as much. But I could be way off. You can share yeah. your statistics. <laughs> no, no. So, I, so I think it's interesting. I wanted to look this up here. Um, so I got the actual piece. So if you look at um, uh, somewhere around around three quarters of internet users between fifteen and thirty five are on YouTube, but the youngest YouTube users actually have been recorded as early as age five and six. And the wow. thing is, if you if you think about if I have an internet enabled device, it's all about search. And those young students, they can't read all the pieces, right? But they can search and they can click on that video, the video yes. picture. So as we think about when these elements become um, a distraction, I would go back to this issue, which I was just learning about. YouTube is really concerned about this issue around um, content like, you know, the pyramids were made to create electricity. Well, that's a hallucination. That's a YouTube hallucination. Now, someone has put that up there. That kind of hallucination is happening everywhere. And um, one of the elements with AI is that you can't be trusted, at least at this point. And that's one of the reasons why um, folks like, like Merlin have come about to say, let's create an experience, but create an experience where it's safe for kids because we need that safe experience. I would note some of this, uh, the elements of using the phone in your classroom. Remember, I can have a school-wide policy. And if I have a classroom where I'm using my phone, if I have a classroom where I'm doing a, 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 some kind of web uh, uh, experience or whatnot, I can still do that. I can just unlock it. But in a classroom like CTE, I know the kids are going to be safe. I don't have to actually make that choice. I don't have to fight the students. Well, listen, we thank you very much. Please do participate in the research. Your voice is critical. Your voice from Ghana is critical. All of these pieces are happening throughout the world. We want to make sure that we get ahead of them and we understand how they are impacting yourself. And please feel free to email us, connect with us. John Oberly, if you're interested in learning more about artificial intelligence. Um, uh, uh, Ruth, if you're thinking about what those environments look like uh, and also uh, the devices. Appreciate you being here and we will see you uh, on the next EdWeb. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much, everyone. Great responses. Great, inter as always, great interaction. Lisa Schmucky, if you're listening, the original Ed Weber, great interaction. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.